all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. From MPB Think Radio, you're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Today, we'll be continuing what we've done over the past few weeks and take your questions related to the novel coronavirus and COVID-19, as well as your questions about how to stay healthy and fit during these times, because it is never more important than now to make sure that we are taking care of ourselves. If you have a question or a comment, our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. My email is fit at mpbonline.org. Or you can hop on over to Facebook and interact with me that way on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. Good morning, Josie. Hope you're doing well this morning. I'm doing just fine for a Monday. Well, that's good. I'd like to just reinforce what Josie said. You know, we're ready to take your COVID-19, your coronavirus questions. But again, it is important that we maintain our good, healthy eating and good habits and that sort of thing. So if you have some questions about the things that we normally talk about on the show, please feel free to go in and call in as well. Having said that, I do have a a (laughs) COVID-19 question. But that is, I heard, they think the governor of New York said uh, he thought that they're reaching the peak in New York, and our governor has talked about the peak and that sort of thing. So, Josie, I wish if you could just give us an idea, explain what the peak is and and why it's important. Okay. So when we think about the word peak, the image that comes to my mind, and it's a fairly accurate image, is the top of a mountain, right? You know, we've got a a fairly um, steep incline going up the mountain, and then you get to the top. And then you have the descent on the other side. And that's really what we're talking about. But there can be different meanings to to peak. And so are we talking peak in the number of cases? Are we talking in peak in the number of deaths? Are we talking in peak in the the amount of hospital resource usage? And so um, I've talked a little bit about models before on the show and that there's are some computer based models out there that are, you know, predicting when the peak, so to speak, will happen. And they give several peaks there. And uh, one of the peaks that they give or that they project is peak hospital resource usage. Right. So at the height of of the pandemic, what, uh, you know, how many hospital beds would we need? How many ICU beds we would need? How many ventilators we would need? And then whether, you know, whether we have those or not. Uh, And they also have a peak for deaths. And so when we're looking at whether we're reaching the peak or not, it's, it's not a one moment in time situation. So we can see, you know, cases are, are continuing to, to go up right now, especially here in Mississippi. We're still on the upward climb for that. 
once we reach the peak, it won't really look like a peak, so to speak, for a second. It should look more like a, a plateau, right? So it should look like the, the number of cases start to level off where they're cons relatively consistent from day to day and then start to see a downward trend in it. But if you're, you know, if you're following me on Facebook, you're following, you know, my data posts that I do every day and the posts that I shared yesterday, when you look at, for example, the new deaths per day um, graph that I shared yesterday, it looks more like a, uh, a sawtooth pattern. And so that's not showing me a plateau or a decline. But we have to remember that from the time of exposure to the time of symptom development for folks, it can take anywhere from two to 14 days, uh, as well as the time lag from when you're tested until you get results, right, can be four to seven days. So we have to see a plateau and a decline over many days before we can truly say we've reached the peak. It's not just, oh, yesterday there were, you know, seven deaths. Today there's six deaths. We've, we've hit it. We're on the way down. No, because tomorrow we could jump up to 11 deaths. We have to see consistent trends for, you know, seven to 14 days really to say that we're on the, the downward slide of that, that peak. And I think it's important to remember that just because we peak, it doesn't mean it's over, right? It just means that we're now moving into a different stage of the pandemic that really focuses um, more on containment and preventing um, a secondary spike, which could happen if, if social distancing is relaxed too soon. All right. Very good. Uh, this is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. If you have a question for Dr. Josie this morning, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 In fact, we do have a caller on the line. So let's say good morning to Sue in Beaumont. Go ahead, Sue. You're on the air. Good morning, and I hope everybody's safe and well there. Yes, ma'am. And, and, and I thank Kevin for staying on the air and giving us updates, too. I, I was listening to MPB on my battery-powered radio last night. I want to ask you about this virus. Can it cross the placental barrier, and can it uh, cross the uh, – it, can it get into mother's milk? I mean, how contagious is it for the baby if the mother has COVID? And I want to ask another question. What about the people who work in funeral homes? How long does that virus live once the person is expired? I mean, does, are they in any danger of – you know, for exposure to anything? Those are really great questions. And so kind of, I feel like I'm a broken record because kind of what I say is we don't fully know the answers to everything yet because it's so new. Um, the last pregnancy-related article that I took a look at was not showing any transmission while the baby was in utero. So the, the passage from virus through the placenta. Well, um, it was, so, so that was a, a good thing, right? So it's, you know, then can the virus be passed during the birthing process and all of those different kinds of things. And there's different strategies going on for that, including, you know, isolation, following delivery and that kind of stuff. But at the present time, it doesn't look like it's transferred um, in utero. Um, the breast milk question, um, the last, I have not seen a study specifically looking at that. Um, a lot of the stuff that I saw initially um, a lot of the babies were being bottle fed afterwards because of the kind of isolation that was taking place following delivery. Uh, so I don't know 100% on that. If anybody has, I'm sure they're looking, um, if there is virus in the breast milk. 
Um, but I don't know the answer to that one yet. But, you know, as always, I'll do some digging on that and see um, see if there's anything out there. And if there is, I'll always share it back with you. Uh, for funeral workers, I have seen a couple of reports where um, there's been some concern about that, just like with um, aerosolizing procedures, right? We've probably heard that term when we intubate someone that can make an aerosol. Yeah. Of course, di different procedures that you would do for autopsies and those kinds of things in theory could also cause some aerosolization that way. Um, but uh, medical examiners are, are trained to use the appropriate PPE to prevent that. Um, by the, and so it should be okay by the time it gets to funeral workers. But I think that's still a uh, topic that is being explored and looked at a little bit more there. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for giving us a call. Good to hear from you, Sue. This is Southern Remedy, Healthy and Fit. Uh, Dr. Josie, the, um, this is a question that a colleague uh, gave to me a couple of weeks ago. We haven't had a chance to get to it, but we talked about underlying conditions and that sort of thing. And with uh, COVID-19 being a respiratory illness, uh, I would imagine that uh, smokers and vapors uh, are at maybe uh, more of a risk. Is, is that true? Yeah. So, you know, we're seeing damage to lungs in people who have healthy lungs, right? So lungs that are not being affected by anything else. So then when you take a set of lungs that are not so healthy from whatever reason, you know, maybe we have COPD or asthma or then certainly lungs that have been injured from repeated exposure to tar and um, smoke. And then the, the um, chemicals that we've talked about with vaping that while are listed as safe in their original state, once we heat them, they turn into different things that do damage to the lungs. We're just, we're just hurting our lungs and we're going to make them less likely to be able to um, stay as healthy as they could if they become infected with the virus. So if we look at uh, the data that's come out from the health department, just about over the last probably seven to 10 days, I would say, where they've started releasing the information on deaths and the underlying conditions that happen uh, with that, which I know was a question that came in on my Facebook as well about underlying conditions, that um, they have kind of the total list, uh, so the, the, the list of underlying conditions by every death, and then they have it broken out um, by African American and Caucasian. And when we look at uh, all of the, the deaths that have happened and the top, I just pull out the top three. Of course, there's plenty more out there. I usually share that graph over on my um, Facebook page as well, and it's on the health department website. Uh, we look at uh, the top three is what I choose to highlight. And for everyone, you know, regardless of race, it's heart disease as number one. Uh, then we've got diabetes and then we have heart disease, I mean, hypertension or high blood pressure. So pretty prevalent illnesses that we have in the general um, public. Those top three stay the same when we pull out just African-Americans. But when we look at Caucasian or white, we have, again, uh, heart disease as number one. We've got high blood pressure as number two. And then we have lung disease as number three. So it really is a contributing factor or at least a, an underlying factor in folks that are not doing well with, uh, with COVID. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. 
Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at UMMC. For the past couple of weeks, we have been taking your questions about COVID-19, and we'll continue to do that today. But I do want to encourage you, if you have a question about general health and wellness, we would love to answer that for you today as well. Our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring uh, now, over on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie, I had a question come in over the break. And so I'm going to go straight to that question and uh, answer that. So we have a question from Carlos this morning. And he says, the skin under one of my toenails has been pink or purple for over three weeks. How long should one wait before getting it checked out? And so, of course, there's a couple of questions that that I have about that, but what it sounds like is uh, something called a subungual hematoma, which is just a big word for a kind of a blood blister or blood bruise underneath the toenail. And that happens for various reasons. If you've ever uh, been nailing a nail in and you hit your thumb with the hammer and you get that kind of purple discoloration underneath the nail and your thumb throbs and all of that's because there's blood connecting, collecting underneath the fingernail and putting pressure on the nerves uh, in the nail bed. Uh, the same thing can happen if you drop something on your toe or you stump your toe or you have maybe a pair of shoes that is not fitting quite as well as we would like for them to uh, in terms of the, the toe box or the, the part of the shoe where your, your toes go. If it's too tight across the top or it's not um, deep enough so that your toes are hitting the end um, of that area that can cause the damage as well. And so in and of itself, uh, a subungual hematoma is not uh, that big of a deal other than the fact that it's uncomfortable. Uh, usually in the office, we can uh, do a drainage of that where we actually help evacuate that blood out from under the nail. It's not necessary, but it does help relieve some of the pain and pressure. But it should grow out, meaning as the toenail grows and new nail is formed and the body reabsorbs that blood underneath the toenail, then then it should, should go away on its own. Uh, if, if it's per se a, a shoe that's not fitting correctly and you continue to wear that shoe, then it may continue to re-injure that spot and it, it not get better. 
So, you know, getting a new pair, you know, a different pair of shoes or, you know, laying off a shoe that that puts too much pressure on the toe would be one option there. The, the second part is, is this getting better? Is it getting worse? Right? So if it's getting better, then we can just continue to watch it. If it's not getting better, it's getting worse, then we want to have that seen about. That's all assuming this is what you have going on. There are other things that can cause discolorations underneath the nail um, that warrant getting evaluated sooner rather than later. So if it's something that is changing, looking like it's growing, or it's just not getting better after you know, laying off whatever was causing the problem, then it's time to get that checked out by a healthcare provider. So it's an excellent question, Carlos. Thank you for sending that in. Thank you. You know, Dr. Josie, when you were reading that, and this is why I don't think I would make a good health care provider, because I do that little where you cringe because you're thinking, oh, that sounds like that's very painful. So I'm sure if any time anybody was uh, describing their symptoms to me, I would just be like, oh, <laughs> we call it nurse face. And so you, you have an outward appearance on the inside. You can you can make whatever faces you want on the inside. But on the outside, you got to have your nurse face on. All right. So nurses would make good poker players then, too. Oh, we make excellent players. <laughs> so before the break, we were talking about smoking and vaping. And, you know, and obviously I think that it, people would probably want to try to quit that at any time. But again, with this situation, uh, additional stress. And I know I try to keep track of the news and what's going on. But sometimes you hear so much, oh, it's on your shoes. You know, all this, the, the information, we get a bit of an information right. overload. And that can lead to kind of stress. And we've talked about this on the show before. But remind us maybe some simple things that we can do when we feel like the the walls are closing in either, you know, uh, going stir crazy or, or too much stress from all the situation. Right. Well, you know, kind of my first tip has always been to unplug, right? You know, a lot of us are spending many hours a day more than we normally would on the internet, on our phones, laptops, whatever, you know, absorbing all this information. And we have to ask ourselves, is that really necessary? Right. And if we're seeing the same thing over and over again, it's probably not necessary, right? If something sounds ridiculous, it's probably ridiculous. And so don't waste your mental energy per se on chasing things, right? Um, that's why I try over on my page to, to give you just the, the bare bones of what you need to know, the take home messages, those kinds of things, and dispel any rumors, what you can do to help not stress other people out is think before you share. Uh, if you're, you know, you're scrolling through Facebook and you see an article or a post or something, you're like, oh, I should share this. You know, I always ask that you kind of stop and think before you do that and ask yourself these three questions. Is it from a, a reputable source, right? Um, is the person that's sharing it a reliable Right. And then does this help someone stay safe? And so if the answers to these, uh, you know, are, are no or I'm unsure, then, then don't share it. You know, you can certainly send it to me. I get I can't tell you how many articles and posts and things shared into me. I prefer it in, through the, the inbox function of the Facebook page. That way it's not sitting there for all the world to see before I get a chance to debunk it um, or prove that it's true. Uh, but those are just ways to, you know, just kind of help stop the spread of misinformation and fear. Now, the stress is real, right? We, we can't uh, 
we like to have control over things as, as much as we can. And this is a situation that we're largely out of control with. And that makes people stressed. It makes people scared. It makes people, you know, act out in, in different ways. And so there are things that we can do to help with that. You know, I've talked about sleep. Sleep is so important. Um, if we don't sleep well, then we have increased anxiety and increased levels of stress hormones that are not helping us. They also make us crave foods that we don't need to to munch on as much, which sets us up for a whole nother situation. So we want to try and think about things that are relaxing to us, right? So we talked about guided imagery before where we actually get in a quiet room. We, you know, you know, cut the lights off and we close our eyes and we actually try to visualize that we're somewhere else as hokey as that sounds. It very much works. Um, I do it with people all the time when I'm trying to get an accurate blood pressure measurement and they're nervous because they're at the doctor's office. Um, I use guided imagery for that. There's deep breathing that helps um, regulate stress and anxiety. Think about if you go for a jog or a run. You, when, you, when you're breathing faster because your body is at increased stress from that, it's not psychological stress, but it's at increased stress because you're making it do more, you breathe with your chest muscles up and down. When we do relaxation breathing, we want to breathe from our, our belly muscle more. So we want that, that diaphragm to really be engaged. And so when people are first learning how to do that, a good way to do it is to, to lay down or recline, put one hand on your chest, one hand on your belly, and take a deep breath. When you take that deep breath, you want the belly hand to rise higher than the chest hand. If it's the opposite of that, then you're still doing deep breathing, but you're doing it from your chest instead of from that belly muscle, and it's not going to relax you as much. Um, so, so practicing the, that deep breathing, and really when I say practice it, I don't mean do it for 30 seconds. I mean really try and focus in on just the breath and that deep breath going in and then slowly out for five minutes. And when I'm working with folks who have you know, diagnosed stress and anxiety disorders, I have them practice this five minutes twice a day because you want it to become a habit when you're stressed. So something that you're able to, to go into immediately with that. Um, the other uh, technique I like is something called a mindful walk. So we've talked a lot about exercise and getting out and moving and all of those kinds of things. And there's absolutely walking to do that, you know, walking to get your heart rate up and to burn some calories. But there's also walking that should just be mindful. So you're just paying attention to the things around you that you see and that you smell and that you hear and that you feel, you know, when you're walking, you, you feel what the pavement feels like, or you smell somebody grilling or the, you know, the sky is a particularly beautiful shade of blue today, or you hear birds, those different things. Instead of just walking and letting your thoughts ruminate in your head, you're actually focusing on the sensory inputs that you're getting during your walk. And it's taking you out of your head for that moment to try and help you relax. And I think here in Mississippi, we're especially lucky in that we have uh, the surroundings, parks and things, uh, the nature walks that we can go on that would really help with that. Whereas in a more urban setting, uh, it, it might be a little bit harder to do. But that, that's a great suggestion. We have got a caller on the line. So we're going to say good morning next to Bell, who's called in today. Bell, you're on the air with us. So go ahead, please. Okay, uh, thank you. I have Mike Bright, so I'm going to try to get two questions out. Um, okay. The first is um, uh, when the economy gets more normal 
and the state has more tax collections coming in. I'm wondering if our uh, health departments in the counties can't be used more to try to help people that are falling through the cracks for health care. I know that there are low-cost clinics in a lot of counties, but I know that over the years that health departments have been restricted and they're only open so many days a week. The other is um, I'm wondering if the medical programs couldn't inform us. If You might be already, but I missed it, on where the testing for the virus is going on in Mississippi at certain times. Thank you so much. I'll listen off the, I'll, I'll shut the phone down and listen on the radio. Thanks. You're welcome. Thank you for that call. And so, you know, I think going forward, once, you know, we're kind of out of crisis mode, I think we're going to have to look at how we deliver healthcare a little bit um, differently to make sure that we're reaching people, which, uh, of course, we've always tried to do to to reach people who are not being um, reached. That's what I've really dedicated my entire career toward is trying to reach those that are what I call underserved or unserved. Um, As far as the second question, I'm so glad that you asked that because I actually have that information and was wanting to share it today. So uh, the health department or the Mississippi State Department of Health did release uh, on their website where the drive-through testing appointment um, locations are for the next um, couple of days. And they they update that pretty regularly. So first I want to update you on the number of tests that have been done. So they said as of yesterday, um, more than 50,000 Mississippians have been tested. And so about 10,500 have been done uh, by the uh, public health laboratory that's part of MSDH. And another 39 to 40,000 have been done by hospitals and other providers. So uh, pretty good testing numbers on that. Of course, when you compare it to the total population of Mississippi, it's still a small number. But when you compare it to uh, the response by other states, we're actually doing quite well in the number of tests that we are that we have administered and are continuing to administer. Now, as far as locations, so today is the 20th. And so testing, one of the drive-through locations today is in Cleveland uh, at Delta State. The 21st, we have two testing sites, one in Yazoo City and one in Winona. Uh, And then for the 22nd, we have one in Richton and one in Port Gibson. And so if you go to the uh, Mississippi State Department of Health website, which you can just in any of your browsers type in Mississippi State Department of Health, and it will take you to their website. Um, they will have that as well as uh, hyperlinks there that you can click on, and it'll give you some more information about um, directions to those testing sites. Um, the best way to access or get an appointment, because we don't want you just showing up, right? Do not just show up at a testing site. Um, you need to get an appointment uh, for that testing site is to use um, that public-facing uh, app that UMC pushed out, the um, uh Ceasefire app that is available, very easy uh, to use. You'll speak with most likely a nurse practitioner on the line, get screened with some questions, and if meet criteria, then you'll get an appointment for that location for uh, the the location uh, that is running that day or the next day, and be able to get set up for an appointment 
there. So I hope that helped you out a little bit. Uh, but they update those testing locations uh, on their website pretty frequently, as well as they usually push it out on uh, Facebook as well. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Thanks for joining us here on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, and we've been answering your COVID-19 and coronavirus questions uh, for the past couple of weeks, and you've gotten uh, some great ones in to us. If you still have some, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring 1-877-672-7464. You can always send us your general medical questions as well, because it is our job to give you the best information to help you stay healthy and fit. All right. Now, Josie, you know, and I kind of struggle with uh, healthy eating, but I do make s- small strides every now and then. So I just wanted to report on my latest one. You know, I've been fixing sandwiches at home uh, most of the last couple of weeks, and uh, I, I finally decided that I would buy some uh, romaine lettuce. And so I'm adding two or three pieces of lettuce to my sandwich every day. And again, it's a small step, but it certainly makes it more crunchy and hopefully it makes it just a tad bit healthier. Absolutely. So, you know, our body or our belly, so to speak, fills up based on the amount of stuff we put in that in terms of the volume, not the number of calories. And so we want to add things to our meals that take up a lot of volume in our belly, but don't add a lot of calories. That is what separates or one of the things that separates a healthy eating pattern from a restrictive diet. Restrictive diets are all about what you can't have and tend to make people hangry because they restrict out things and you end up eating less food and people people don't like that. And so when we add things like lettuce or um, cucumbers or peppers or, you know, any of these vegetables to our sandwiches, so to speak, we're adding a lot of bulk for not a lot of calories because all of those things, and especially something like romaine or or any of the lettuces, are majority water and fiber. Water has no calories. Fiber has no calories. So they're an excellent addition to add bulk without adding calories. All right. So, yay, another another little small victory for me. That's always good to hear. That's right. 
Celebrate the small wins. All right, here's a question we got a couple weeks ago on your Facebook page, and it talks about masks. I think everyone knows now the sort of the N95 masks are those the ones that uh, healthcare providers like to use because it blocks out so many uh, particles there. Uh, This question asks about a P95 mask. They say they have them Mm -hmm. with their business. Want to know the difference, and will the P95 mask be helpful in uh, avoiding transmission or receiving viruses and bacteria? Right. So the filtering capability in terms of the size of particle that would be filtered out is the same, regardless of whether it's a P95, N95, and there's an R95 out there. The letter in front has to do with the type of um, material, so to speak, that it would filter out. So um, I believe the P95s have, they're rated for more oily based substances. So if it was something that was aerosolized out of an oil-based product, then that would filter it out better than an N95. So in terms of viral filtering, they would be um, equivalent. All right. Uh, Here's another one. And this is an interesting question I think that a lot of people uh, have been asking about, and I think it varies. But the question is, how long does the virus last on surfaces? You know, and that was a question that was asked the very first uh, COVID show we did, and we know so much more about it then. You know, at that point, we were we were thinking, you know, um, hours in terms of survivability. Uh, we've got more information on that now, and we get more as time progresses because people are doing new experiments and new studies on that. And so it really depends on the surface. Uh, it also depends on temperature, humidity, all of those different kinds of things. But if we kind of go back to initially, we, we've probably heard about cardboard. Cardboard, it survives about 24 hours on cardboard. When we move to things like uh, paper, talking about like like printed materials from a, a printer maybe at, a, at an office, it's, it's hours on that. Uh, when we talk about stainless steel or plastic, it can be up to, to seven days on that. Uh, glass, up to four days. So, it really depends on, on the surface. I had a question specifically come into my Facebook page about survivability on masks and how long it uh, was living on the outside surface of the mask. And I've only found one um, study on that. It was just released a couple of days ago, and it uh, showed sur- showed viral particles surviving up to seven days on the outside surface of the mask. Now, I think it is very important that we talk about the fact that just because viral particles are found does not necessarily mean they confer infectability, right? So just because they're there doesn't mean that they would grow and multiply in a host. So we, we're, all we're saying is they're, they're there and present. We would then need to take those experiments a step further and try and culture those viruses and see if they are actually able to, to replicate uh, for that. So it's on there. So that's why hand washing is so important. That way, if we're touching any of these surfaces, we're not touching our faces. We're immediately washing our hands afterwards. It's also why gloves outside of a healthcare provider are just not a good idea because not trained to think about what all you're touching with those. You know, when I walk in a hospital room and I, you know, see maybe the over the bed table is in disarray, which it usually is when I walk in, you know, there's tissues there and, you know, maybe an old dinner tray and cups and all this kind of stuff on there. I usually wash my hands, get a pair of gloves, 
I clean up all of that trash, everything like that. Then I wipe down the the table. Then I discard that pair of gloves. And if I need to move on to a different task, let's say I need to um, maybe put some cream on a patient's rash or something like that, I'm going to, again, wash my hands, put on a new pair of gloves and apply that ointment, take those gloves off, wash my hands. And let's say I got to do one more thing. Now I got to go to the bathroom and maybe empty out um, the the urine container in there. I'm going to put on a different pair of gloves and do that. So we change gloves between each task because we're trying not to transfer germs from one area to another. So when I see people out with gloves and they're touching all the things and then they're touching their car door handle and the lift gate on their, you know, their SUV and their steering wheel and their cell phone, those gloves have done, done nothing. Um, you've still transferred those germs to, to all the places that you thought you were trying to prevent transferring them to. So you don't really need them. Just wash your hands or use an alcohol-based hand sanitizer um, after you've touched a surface. You know, uh, earlier we talked about some of the uh, underlying conditions uh, that go along with COVID-19. And one headline I saw uh, last week, I think it was Newsweek, uh, talked about Mississippi having the greatest percentage of hospitalized patients uh, in the country. Is that partly due to the fact that we have these underlying conditions that people are already suffering from in addition to COVID-19? Could be. Uh, You know, I haven't seen any... Uh, correlational data on that where they're, you know, really tracking those that are hospitalized and what their underlying conditions are. You know, all we have at this point or all that's been released, I'm sure they're tracking it, but all that's been released is death data and what those underlying conditions were. Of course, when we first started getting cases here, that was my concern because we do tend to have poor overall health in terms of cardio metabolic health, you know, our blood sugar issues, blood pressure issues, heart disease issues. And so that, that does make me a little bit more concerned about how well, you know, how well we're able to do outside of the hospital uh, before requiring hospitalization. But I don't have any hard data to back that up. And so, you know, I love, I love me some data. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. 
I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, and we've been answering your COVID-19 questions as well as your general health and wellness questions today. We are in the last little bit of the show, but if you have a burning question, you can try and get that into us, one eight seven seven mpb ring or you can uh, send it in an email, fit at mpbonline.org, or send it to me over on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. I know we've got a couple callers on the line, so we want to get to those. First, we'll go over to Megan in Jackson. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. What can we do for you? I have uh, two quick questions. It, um, okay. I saw an article where a physician at UMC was make, had gone to the hardware store and was making uh, ventilators out of um, mm-hmm. stuff he got at the hardware store because I uh-huh. guess he thought that UMC did not have enough. So does a uh, UMC uh, have enough ventilators? Uh, for anticipated patients, and the next question is about testing. It it's mm-hmm. uh, it, that seems to be a little fuzzy, and I, it may just be me. But what are the criteria for getting tested? Perfect. Okay. So yes, you're referring to the um, ventilator, the Robertson ventilator that was uh, developed by one of the pediatric anesthesiologists. And so I think it's important to um, point out that those were created for uh, a crisis if we needed those. Those have not been deployed and have not been uh, needed uh, currently. The health department yesterday just released a new graphic over on their website that shows the current number of ventilators in use. Um, And yesterday, let me see, let me look on my little pad. Yesterday, 79 ventilators in use. Now, that's not just at UMC. That was across statewide. And so they're, depending on the location, Um, that number doesn't appear to be above what we would normally have. Now, there are small rural hospitals, and I addressed this over on um, Facebook not too long ago. I don't know how many ventilators, say, a small rural hospital has. If, you know, five people showed up at that hospital and needed a ventilator, would they have enough? I don't know the answer to that. They may only have two. Um, But from a statewide perspective, it it doesn't look like we're uh, above – the number that we have, that we we're not needing more than we have currently. Um, in terms of testing um, for the uh, C Spire app, for the, the UMC drive-through testing sites that we have that are in partnership with MSDH, really fever is uh, the criteria for that. Uh, there are other questions that are asked about some of the other symptoms, cough, shortness of breath, you know, those kinds of things. But Fever, and there's no cutoff for um, fever, so you don't have to have a fever of a certain number, is the, is the big criteria for that. Now, if tests are being done, it may be an independent um, physician or nurse practitioner's office, something like that, or through another um, healthcare institution. I don't know what their criteria are, but for the, the statewide testing that is being jointly administered by UMC and um, MSDH, it is fever is, is the criteria for testing. All right, uh, Megan, we appreciate that call. Next uh, on the line, we have got uh, Simon, who's called in from Collins. Go ahead. You're on the air with us. Uh, yes, quick uh, quick question. Thank you. Uh, if there's any moisture in the virus uh, cell, would microwaving a mask in a, in a microwave kill it? I'll, I'll listen off air. Perfect. And so there's actually been some information about heat and the application of heat killing um, the virus. Actually, in that study that just came out a few days ago, uh, and I believe the temperature was like 150 degrees maybe 
for a certain number of minutes. That being said, microwave is not the correct choice. Um, there have been lots and lots of um, posts that have come out showing where microwaves have exploded or caught on fire and then kitchens have caught on fire and all those different kinds of things for various reasons, right? A lot of the masks, especially the manufactured masks, are going to have a metal stripping that overlies the nose piece. Uh, and a lot of the homemade masks do as well because the public has been so amazing in adapting what they're doing to what is needed by healthcare institutions. And we need masks that fit tightly around our face. And so they've added paper clips in or pipe cleaners, or, you know, or different things in to allow for at least a bendable um, device to fit to our noses. And so those will, will spark and catch on fire in a microwave. Um, I wouldn't put them in an oven either. Um, you know, if it is a manufactured mask and you're using it at home, I would just just throw it away um, because really the only decontamination process that um, has been proven to be safe and effective in terms of not altering the uh, filterability and the fit of the mask are more commercial decontamination uh, methods. Now, your cloth masks or your fabric masks that are being uh, manufactured by um, the public. Those can be laundered the same as normal, just on a hot setting and on the hot dryer uh, as well. All right, Simon, thanks for that call. Josie, you've got about two and a half minutes left for one final question that comes from your Facebook page, and that is we see a lot of data about uh, COVID-19 and the coronavirus. Why are we not seeing more recovery numbers? Uh, this is the the number one thing I get asked, and I know people are frustrated um, with the lack of that information coming out there. But there's a, there's several reasons why it's not readily available, and one is a lack of a standardized definition as to what it means to be recovered. Right. So there's the medical definition of recovery, which means you're fever free without medications that would reduce your fever for three consecutive days. Okay. Um, that you've had a decrease in your symptoms, especially decrease in cough and shortness of breath, and it's been at least seven days since your symptoms began, right? So those are three very specific criteria that have to be met for a, a medical recovery to be uh, said. And then there's the testing recovery, right? So that's two separate negative tests 24 hours apart. So it's a lot of criteria that has to be made for, for them to officially say this person is recovered, right? And then we have to look at um, how many cases are outstanding. And so at this point, those numbers, while they make us feel good that people are getting better, and people are getting better, it, the numbers are not telling the true picture yet, right? So if we look at just the U.S., right, so there's over 700,000 cases, you know, 767,000 cases, and we only know the outcome in about 112 of those, either recovered or they've died, right? So um, about 40,000 deaths, a little more than 40,000 deaths, and about 71,000 recovered, right? So we only know the true outcome in a little over 100,000 of those. So that's still leaving you know, 600,000 folks or so that we don't know what the outcome is going to be yet. And so that number is going to change. It is going to change for the better. A lot of people are going to do well with this. 
but we do have those folks who are not doing well with it. And so we won't know the true recovery rate until we get a little bit farther along into this. We get over that peak and we start to um, have consistent decline in numbers and know the outcomes of these cases. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere.